Just about three weeks from now is, I know, a favorite day for many of you. That's about four weeks from now. Three weeks from now is, is right around tax day. I think they're going to throw things. <laughs> not a favorite day? No? It, it, hopefully, how many of you have not done your taxes yet? <laughs> times, times a ticking. Times a ticking. Now, you'd worry a little bit more if in the mail you, you got a little envelope in a couple months that said, Congratulations, you have been chosen by the IRS to receive a visit from one of our auditors. That'd be a little difficult. What would your feelings be about that point in time? Grumble, not feelings of love and, and joy and, and goodwill. Someone once told me if an auditor does come, maybe I shouldn't say this, um, put them in the, the least comfortable room with no heat or no air conditioning, depending on, and just let them work. And just, what? Doesn't work. Good to know. <laughs> we love you, Juan. <laughs> My point in bringing that up actually does tie into the morning. It's not just, oh, tax day is coming. But our, our point is, as we come to the story this morning, we, we come to a time where Jesus makes a call again. And He calls another disciple into the group, into the group that will found the church and that will spread the gospel and be responsible for the message continuing. And He chooses a person that is one of the most despicable, annoying class of people that he could have chosen from. A tax collector. Tax collector. Now, their view of tax collectors was actually much worse than ours. Your responses just now would have been actually quite gracious compared to how they would have responded to a tax collector. But the bigger issue, as we, as we go through the story this morning, and this morning's going to look a little different. We're going to spend some time on a, a shorter passage of Scripture. Then we're going to hear from one of our missionaries and then talk a little bit about um, missions and how we support missions. But the story that we come to this morning is, is that Jesus is crossing boundaries and He's challenging our assumptions about people. And He's challenging how we view people, how we treat them, and, and what kind of people we associate with. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And the question we ask as we come to this text is, really, what does God look for in a disciple? What was Jesus looking for? Because it wasn't what some of the people around Him thought He would be looking for or thought He should be looking for. But Jesus radically redefines discipleship. And redefines who is righteous. Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Keep in mind where we just were last week in the verses right before. He was back in Capernaum, and he went back to the house, possibly Peter's house. And the, the guys, the friends in their faith, dug through the roof and lowered their paralyzed friends right in front of Jesus. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. 
And the scribes there just just went nuts. They're like, what? And, and they went nuts in their mind. They didn't outright attack Jesus. But in their mind, they're thinking, this guy is crazy. How can he say this? Does he think he's God? He is blaspheming God Almighty. And Jesus says, so what is easier? That I heal him or that I forgive his sins? He said, so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And in this crowded room and Jesus is ministering, He boldly shows that He has the power to cleanse and He has the power to forgive sins. But then in this next verse, in verse 13, He gets away. We see that as a pattern. Jesus always went, went outside of the crowds and got away and He went out again beside the sea. And what happens? The crowd comes to Him. They won't leave Him alone. But Jesus is the heart of a servant Savior. He teaches. And literally the the wording there is they keep coming and He keeps teaching. They keep coming and He keeps teaching. It was very strategic to teach by the sea. Happy was telling me when he was in Israel just just what that area looked like. And you could have a teacher stand by the sea or or just out in a boat and the, the shape of the hills formed a natural bowl. And he was telling me that the t- his teacher actually went down and talked at probably a little less loudly than I am right now. And they were up scattered all over the hill and everyone on that hill could hear. And so Jesus goes to a place where multitudes can hear. And he, he teaches because it's about repentance. But then we get into what ha- the, the rest of the story in verse 14. And as he passed by, and he's probably coming back into town, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. And we don't get a lot of details about Levi, who, who we believe is also Matthew. If you look at the parallel accounts in Matthew, the name Matthew is used in Mark and Luke, Levi is used. And he probably had two names. And we don't get a lot of details about him because the point is who God is choosing. What kind of person God is choosing. And you see a number of things in this short little verse that are just amazing. Because we we find that he is a tax collector sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And in Capernaum, this was a on the, the road of a major trade route. And so what Levi was doing here was not so much collecting income taxes or, or those, those kind of taxes. This was more like a toll booth, a customs booth. And so everything that came through there, all of the goods that came through there, and this was a major trade route, all of the goods that came through, he would tax and he would demand payment for. And the way that the, he worked for Herod, but the way that they had this worked out was he would pay a lump sum at the beginning of the year. And so he would say, I'm paying this to have this booth. And then whatever he collected, he got to keep. Now, how do you think that works out? If, if, if he pays $1,000, they didn't have dollars, but in today's terms, if he paid $1,000 at the beginning of the year and people are coming through, how much does he charge? $10 ahead? Whatever he can get to get away, get away with because it's not tied to the goods. It's not tied to anything except his profit. 
And if it's only tied to his profits, what do you think tax collectors did? They charged as much as they could. And what's interesting is the people wouldn't be able to pass unless they paid it. And so what would we call that in this day and age? Extortion. Thanks, John. And this comes to why this position was hated. In fact, the, the idea of a customs tax that bridges, canals, and trade routes, these tax collectors were despised more than those that took income tax and poll tax. If you look at the, the history, it looks as if he also taxed fish and the fishing trade because Capernaum was, it was a, a huge fishing region. Now think about that. That sets up an interesting tension when Jesus calls him. Because who were some of the other disciples that were called? Fishermen. Oh, they knew Levi. They, they were very acquainted with this man. And so we, we set the picture and we have to understand what's happening is Levi is sitting up in his booth and it's probably a little elevated booth waiting for people to come by to charge them, to extort them. And Jesus, who he's probably seen several times because this is Jesus' base of operations, Jesus walks by and says, follow me. Follow me. And I can just picture the other disciples and the other people walking by saying, what? Jesus, that's the tax guy. Really? Really? You, you don't want him. This is the lowest of the low in our society. This is not a man you want in your inner circle. This is not a man who will do much for you. And the people around are looking at the external, and we'll find that in the next few verses with the Pharisees. They're looking at the external. They're looking at a heart pre-Christ. That Christ hasn't changed, that Christ hasn't cleansed, and they don't understand the depth of the work of Christ. So the Jews would have regarded Levi as an outcast, actually more than a leper, and this ties to this whole sequence of stories about God's authority to cleanse. A tax collector would have been disqualified as a judge or witness, excommunicated from the synagogue, his family would have been dishonored, and he would have been listed with the murderers and robbers. Do we see the depth of their hate? The depth of the animosity? And I share that because I don't think we can understand the story without understanding the depth of the hate. I don't think we can understand how revolutionary Jesus' actions are here without understanding what's really happening. And Jesus says, follow me. And do you see Levi's response? Christ commands. It's not an invitation, it's a command. And Levi rose, he left what he was doing, and followed him. Simple, straightforward obedience. And we begin to see by Levi's response why Jesus chose him. Why Jesus called him. This was a man that would obey, that would abandon everything for the king. And we'll see as the story continues, he was a man who would bring others to Christ. See, Jesus, as He's choosing a leader, 
as he's choosing the foundation of his church, it's not about external qualifications. It's not about knowledge. It's about a heart of humility, a heart for Christ, a heart that allows Christ to change him. Moving on to verse 15, we'll go through the story and then make a couple of comments about it. Because we just see Levi following him in the very next verse. And as he reclined at a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with, reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And it seems like an abrupt change of scene, but what happened here is, is Levi was so touched by Christ and so cleansed and changed by Christ that the first thing he does is he throws a party. He says, you know what, let's get everyone together. And now, now he's an outcast, so who does he invite? Other outcasts. And in, in, in an amazing story, he brings everyone together because I can just picture it. You've got to see this man. You've got to meet this man. He has changed my life already. He called me. Come, hear him. And we see Levi being an effective witness on day one. And I'm put to shame by that. I'm put to shame in his spontaneous joy of following. And he arranges this banquet, probably at Levi's house. And they're reclining at the table because at formal dinners, their custom was to recline on on pillows around a low table. And again, the, the understanding of what it meant to eat someone is key here. And it ties back to to who Matthew was, who these outcasts were. In this culture, to eat with somebody was a sign of intimate fellowship. It was a sign of intimate relationship. And so to, to eat with them meant, I am close to you, I will protect you, I will guard you, you are in my inner circle. And so Jesus goes to the outcasts, to the sinners, to the rejects of society, and says, you are my most intimate friends. And he touched them, and he reached out to them. I love the very last phrase of verse 15. For there were many who followed him. And we see what Jesus is doing here, and we see the result. The result is many of these people became disciples. Many followed Christ through the witness of one man who was called off a tax booth. But the story doesn't end there. We see in this sequence of stories in Mark, we're at at the second of five direct confrontations with the Pharisees. And they often, in the life of Christ, they often follow the same pattern. And and if you think of it as, as three phases, the first being Jesus does something really extraordinary and challenges the preconceptions of society. The second phase is is the Pharisees come and try to instruct or trap, try to teach him the error of his ways. And the third step is that Jesus somehow answers them to where they have nothing more to say. He shuts them up. And and we'll see that again in this this story because he has the authority and, and he has the ability to bring them to the truth. So in verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, do you see what's happening here? They, the banquets were probably in large open areas and they, they see what Jesus is doing. Do they go to Jesus? No, who do they go to? They go to the disciples. And remember, the disciples probably are, are, are struggling with this internally a little bit too because this is Levi. And, and now he's one of them. And now they're asked to accept him. And so they go to the, his disciples and they just start to plant seeds of dissension and seeds of discord. What's he doing? He, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. We, we don't do that. That's wrong. That, that is something that is just beyond the pale of what we should be doing. See, the Pharisees, they viewed themselves as righteous. And, and in this case, it's the scribes of the Pharisees. So it's a smaller group. Not all scribes were Pharisees. Not all Pharisees were scribes. But the scribes, in this case, was a small group of Pharisees that were also scribes. They were the legal specialists. And so they knew the law. And they, they had come up with preventative ways to keep themselves from sin, to keep themselves from defilement. And one of the ways they did that is you don't eat with tax collectors and sinners. You don't eat with anyone that's unclean. And so the Pharisees had, had come in to, to be set apart. And so they felt that to protect your righteousness, you only associate with righteous people. And you eat with other Pharisees. And it became this closed little group that protected them from any defilement. And they look at Jesus, who is a teacher of the law, and they recognize that he's a teacher with authority, and their first thought is, this is wrong. We don't eat with those people. And just like the leper, where the fear was if someone touched the leper, they would be unclean. The fear with these people was if you ate with them, you would be unclean. But just like with the leper, Christ and His authority and His power cleansed the leper. In this case, Christ and His authority and His power brought these people to discipleship. But it just annoyed the scribes to no end. So they go to the disciples and they try to cause division and spread rumors. And Jesus in verse 17 shuts them up. And when Jesus heard it, He said to them, in a statement that is dripping with irony, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here Jesus uses a common proverb that we see in even other writings of the time, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he's using righteous in a term that is is ironic. He is not actually declaring the Pharisees as righteous. He is not honestly saying, well, you're right. You, You don't need a Savior. You're off the hook. But these people do. But he's using their own statements against them. It's almost like he's saying, okay, if you want to make a division between the righteous and the unclean, let's make the division. But if we do that, the righteous are not who I came to. You who consider yourself self-righteous are not who I came to save because you don't need me. You don't need me. I hate going to the doctor. 
And if I'm well, I won't go to the doctor. Probably should. My wife's probably glaring at me right now. <laughs> because when do you go to the doctor? When you're sick. And when you're, because there becomes a need, there becomes an importance to it. Now, don't get me wrong. We should. So don't say, well, Pastor Ron said we shouldn't go to doctors if we're well. It's not what I'm saying. But, but you get the point is we, we don't see a need for it and so we don't go. And that's the imagery that Jesus is bringing up here. You don't need me. They did need him, but you don't think you need me. And so Jesus turned to the outcasts, the ones that could see their vital need, the ones who would be humble to hear and respond to God's call. And at the end of verse 17, he brings it around to, I have not, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those that are not able to keep the law as the Pharisees have described it. Those that realize they need Christ and cannot do this alone. And in these five verses, Jesus turns everything on its ear. He messes with everything. Because the people that you would have expected to be the leaders of this new movement, the people that were trying to follow the law they thought and were righteous and were so good in their own eyes were the people that couldn't hear the message and couldn't be called. It's a simple story where Jesus turns away from those that society elevated and he elevates those that society put down. As we read a story like this, the question that that keeps coming up every time actually for me that the Pharisees are on the scene, the question that comes up is, so, so who are we? So who are we? Who do I relate with more in the story? Do I relate more with the scribes? Or do I relate more with the people at the table with the Messiah? Do I relate more with Levi? Or maybe I relate more with the disciples where I struggle with this. Where I struggle with how to bring in people who have passed that, that I can't justify until I realize I'm not the one justifying. And I'm challenged by that. And I have four points in your, your notes, just observations to get out of this. Who was Jesus looking for? He was looking for the sick. He was looking for the sick. And I'd like to sort of run with this metaphor a little bit since Jesus brought it up. What about being sick makes a difference in discipleship? What about knowing that we are are in need of something and ill to our very souls? What about that helps the process of discipleship? The first point when we are sick, we are desperately aware of our need. When we are sick, we are desperately aware of our need. Jesus is looking for the needy. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Throughout February and March, our family went through being sick. And it, it 
was almost two months of someone in the house being sick at any given time. And we found we're a very sharing family, and we care about each other a lot, so we just passed it around. And, and I can remember the third time through when Mark got sick yet again, and realizing just how, the, how desperate the need was. Not in terms of life-threatening in this case, but we were done. We were empty. And it's like, okay, what do we do? Every night we're up with a sick child and, and, you know, Mark comes in sick again and we both just sort of lay there hoping the other gets up. But when we're sick, there's a need and we're made aware of it. And Christ here came for the sick. It's interesting when he calls... Levi, when he says, follow me, he uses a Greek word, akalutheo. And it has several meanings, but, but in all of the cases, all of the meanings of to follow have to do with need and a recognition of need. The first meaning of to follow is, is literally to walk in the steps of or to walk behind. If we would think of it, we would think of it as to imitate. To imitate. You know, if I was to take Joshua here, you don't have to get up. But if I was to take Joshua and then I was to, um, let's see who else, take Steve, okay? And I would say, Joshua, you're going to walk down this aisle and walk anywhere you want and Steve will follow you and do whatever you do. Maybe we should do, no. Um, <laughs> that would be a definition of the word to follow. Because it wasn't just to walk behind, but to imitate everything he did. But the second definition is very interesting because... It also meant to follow the leadership of or to submit to. And it comes back to the idea of need and do we need a Savior? Are we willing to say, I don't have to be in charge. I don't have to be in control. To accompany someone who takes the lead, to submit to authority. The final part of the definition of to follow is Literally to be a disciple. And Mark uses it over and over as a, a theme of discipleship. And it meant to come under someone and to be teachable. To be teachable. And so when Levi got up and he followed Christ, he was not only saying, I will imitate you. He was saying, I will submit. I will, I will give up control of my life. And he was saying, I will let you teach me. I will let you teach me. And all of these things flow out of need. Compare the sick with the scribes and the Pharisees. They saw no need. In fact, the only need they saw was to instruct and to correct Jesus. Teachability wasn't even close to being on their radar. See, to Christ, a heart that will submit a heart that will follow, a heart that needs Christ is more important than a heart that already has it put together. Do we need Christ? We have a wide variety of ages at Village Bible Church, and I love that. It's one of the things that I think makes a church family a church family. But this one is particularly difficult for the older ones that are among us or the ones that have been Christians a long time. 
Because we get to a point where we really think we have it together, don't we? Where, where we think, well, there's nothing new they could teach me. I don't need that. And those are all lies from the devil of trying to keep us from being teachable and trying to keep us from being disciples and following our Lord and Savior. And it's why I believe as we mature in the faith and age in the faith, we have to be on guard against becoming Pharisees. Next thing about being sick that we see in this story. When we are sick, we are often willing to change and sacrifice. When we are sick, we are often willing to change and sacrifice. Did you catch the first part of when when Levi followed? What does Mark say before the following part? And he rose. You might say, well, yeah, he had to get up to do that. But, but understand, he was getting up and leaving his life. He was leaving his profession. The thing about, about leaving a tax booth is if you left that, you don't get that job back. As much as people hated tax collectors, everyone wanted the job. Why? Money. Absolutely. And so to leave that meant to leave behind this profession, to leave behind wealth, to leave behind a life of ease, and to follow poverty. It meant to abandon. See, Christ is looking for people that are willing to sacrifice. When we are sick, we are often willing to change and sacrifice. When a devastating physical ailment hits us, we're suddenly willing to change diet and willing to change exercise and willing to change habits. Why? Because something has happened that has changed everything. And Jesus, as part of discipleship, says, I want the sick. I call the sick because they're willing to change and sacrifice. Mark, as part of the sickness, has had to do under doctor's orders, some really crazy things with his nose that I can't even really watch. Things that we would not normally make our son do. Maybe as part of discipline or something. He does it because he needs to get better. And he's willing to change and willing to sacrifice. Third point If the sick are cured, they celebrate and tell others. If the sick are cured, they celebrate and tell others. Levi threw a party. Many became disciples in verse 15. And Jesus is looking for those that will reach out and share Him with a world that needs Him. With everyone around. With everyone that will hear. And the sick, when they are miraculously cured, you can't keep them quiet. We saw that with the leper. You can't keep them quiet. Because they understand their need. And it comes back to need. See, if we don't think we need Christ, if we don't see the power of the cross, if we don't see the debt that we have to His grace, then there's nothing to celebrate. 
A Pharisee that is saved that never comes to grips with his sin never becomes a witness for Christ. I'm fascinated that not only did Levi throw the party, but that Jesus and his disciples went to the party and communed for the purpose of calling more disciples. And I'm challenged with, do I realize I'm cured? Do I realize that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me? as the greatest gift I could ever have? And do I tell anyone? And Jesus in these five verses steps on toes with his actions. Fourth and last one, when we're sick, we don't mind being around other sick people. Some of you might say, ah, that's not always true. (laughs) Just go with it. In general. I've had a number of people, when when we were all fighting things, they're like, well, okay, we're fighting things too, so let's get together and have dinner. Because we're we're sort of all in this together. When we go to the doctor's office for Mark, they have two waiting rooms. One for the sickies, and one for the people that are well. And this was one of the first times Mark's had to go to the one with the sickies, and that just drove him nuts. I don't want to go in there. Those people are sick. So are you. (laughs) But see, when we're sick and when we realize our need, we're not afraid to associate with other sick people because no longer can it be, well, I'm better than you. Because we're all sick. It's not, well, I I can't associate with you because I might get sick. No, you're already sick. We're all sick. Don't just quote that part of the sermon today. Because the, the, the other side of that is Jesus came and His cleansing power healed. And these were the people that ended up being truly righteous because they followed Christ and because His death on the cross that they repented and were looking forward to. But the communion that we see with the disciples, with Jesus, with the tax collectors, and with the sinners reclining at the table together And we are called to embrace each other as a church. To embrace fellow sick people that have been cured by the servant Savior. To realize we have this cure in common. And how dare I look around and say, well, I don't have something in common with them. Or I just don't get along with them very well. Or, you know, really they're at a different place in life. When Jesus and His disciples were willing to Dine with the outcasts that were coming to Christ. See, so many times divisions in the church and our desire to find a group that we fit into come from very self-righteous tendencies. And rather than coming together and saying, my role is to be sick with you and to bring you to Christ. To show you the cure. Your role as as a mature Christian is to come alongside the immature, whether it be in Christianity or whether it be in life, 
and to be a body and to bring them along and to recline at the table with them. See, the Pharisees, rather than embracing, despised. Rather than bringing sinners to Christ, they drove sinners away from Christ if they could. Rather than abandoning through change and sacrifice, they tried to burden Christ with the law that they didn't understand. And in the short passage, I come back to the question, who are you? Who am I? Am I the Pharisee? Or am I Levi, who is willing to go to any extent to bring people to Christ? Great personal cost to throw this party because my friends need to know Christ. As we close today, I just close with the same question that that I think Jesus presented to the Pharisees. Do you think you're righteous or do you think you're needy? Because that affects our view of missions, that affects our view of who we reach out to, it affects our view of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, may we be the ones that need you. Above all else, Lord, we need your grace. We need your work on the cross. We need your strength. And Lord, as we see that need, may we be so excited about how you fill that that we tell a lost world about you. That we truly do make a difference for you and bring as many people as we can to see Jesus. Thank you for the work Gail is doing. May you continue that and be with all of our missionaries as they proclaim your word. Lord, may we also be missionaries in our neighborhoods and everywhere we go to proclaim your word and your gospel. In your name, amen.